Welcome to Non-Consensus Investing. I'm Ram Alawalia, your host and CIO at Lumida Wealth, where we specialize in the craft of alternative investments. At Lumida, we help guide clients through the intricacies of managing substantial wealth so they don't have to shoulder the burden alone. Through this podcast, we draw back the curtain to reveal the strategies employed by the best in the business for their high net worth clients so that you too can invest beyond the ordinary. All right. I'm very excited and pleased to have us joined by the author of The Great Demographic Reversal. It's a terrific book published by economists that I believe previously worked at Morgan Stanley. We're not going to hold that against them. Charles Goodhart is a professor emeritus at the London School of Economics. And Manoj is the founder of Talking Heads Macro. So they've written a non-consensus book, very provocative that goes against the grain of traditionally held conventional wisdom ideas. And we believe demographics are destiny. And there's a lot of demographic changes happening in the world, right? China's population is set to shrink by hundreds of millions by the end of the century. The United States is below replacement rate. And we're faring better than Japan and Europe and other countries around the world. What does that mean? How should one position? What's the role of AI? robotics in any of this. There's a lot of really interesting ideas to get into. I thought a good place to start might be to first off, just summarize the argument and then we can move forward to how do we, where do we go from here? Do you want me to start perhaps? Go for it. The 30 years from about 1990 to about 2020 were really extraordinary. They were totally unusual in the longer term history. During these, the baby boomers, with the rise in the birth rate between about 1945 and about 1965, entered into the workforce. And meanwhile, the fertility rate, the number of births per women, went down really quite sharply. The latter had the effect of bringing a vast number of women into the workforce who were previously working at home, looking after their children, doing cleaning and cooking, which also got made easier by white goods, dishwashers and refrigerators and so on. And then above all, you had the geopolitical developments, whereby China and Eastern Europe entered into the world's trading system. It was the biggest ever single surge in the available labor supply that the world has ever seen. The result of that was that wages everywhere got held down uh, because China became the workshop of the world and produced masses and masses of goods, and the prices of goods declined year after year. So that even with service prices going up, you still had a degree of small price inflation. Now that's uh, You mentioned in your introduction that Chinese population was going down, I think you said at the end of the century. It's already gone down. It went down last year by quite a lot. Uh, It's actually been overtaken by India as the largest single country in the world in terms of population, and it's going to go on going down. The increase of uh, China's GDP, which was running at about 10% per annum, has more than has a phrase about China growing old before it grows rich. It's growing old very rapidly and the number of workers is declining very sharply. 
the influence of China on the world is going to diminish, rather in the same way as the influence of Japan on the world was huge until really about 1990 and then began to decline. So the effect on Asia in particular of the population changes is just enormous. And note that in the last year, the birth rate in China was as low as 0.6, actually much the same as in Korea, 0.6, where the sustainable rate is 2.1. And China is going to have a totally lopsided population with very little increase, in fact, decreases in their working population year after year. And if your working population is decreasing, it takes a hell of a lot of productivity increases to get an increase in per capita income. So the China is going to move into the same sort of situation or even more than Japan. It's going to move from being the fastest growing economy in the world pretty much to flatlining. Wow. Uh, we're also seeing some of the effects immediately with the property market crisis in China. I don't know, things are not that bad, but I mean, the, the longer term future is going to be very different. It's much the same, only much less marked uh, in advanced countries of the West. And But even here, the natural workforce in countries like the, your own in the USA and the UK are going down. But the working population is being held up by inwards migration, which we might talk about at some stage. Because the question of what is going to happen to migration uh, is a key question, both politically and economically, and going to be very much affected by the public response to the fact that over the last few years, immigration has really increased fairly sharply to levels such that the share of the immigrant population in the US is back to about its all-time high, much the same in the UK. And indeed, the birth rate in Western countries is being partially held up by the fact that immigrant families tend to have more children than um, locally born women have children. And you know, the question then is, and it's a quite difficult question to answer, exactly what are the implications uh, of this massive reversal in demography. I think I'll pass over to, to Manoj now, if I may, to take one through some of the... One of the great questions on this is what is likely to happen to inflation and particularly to interest rates. Again, I'm not speaking, and I don't think we particularly want to speak about the immediate future the next few months or the next few quarters, because that's influenced by a whole series of probably passing changes, where we want to speak about what's likely to happen over the next sort of 10 years or so. So Manoj, can I pass to you? Yeah, I'll just make three very short comments. The three questions that I think we need to ask ourselves is number one is, when you hear Charles talking, particularly about the past, I think most people would agree that demography, the introduction of China, had a particularly strong role to play in disinflation, in globalization. And if you do agree with the past that those kind of features did play an important role in the past that we've had, which has been extremely constructive for a large part of the last 30 years and disinflationary for almost all of it, 
why should we be convinced that the reversal of demography will not lead to a reversal of at least some of those features? We're not asking about inflation going back to the 1970s and the 1980s. But is it that difficult to believe that a reversal of some of these demographic trends will then unravel some of the past changes that we had seen where inflation came down, wage growth was significantly lower? These labor markets are going to tighten. China's not going to play a disinflationary role. Why can't we think of 3 to 4% inflation? Is that too much to think about? Number one. Number two, if we do also agree that China and demography had a role to play in bringing inflation down, how much should we allow central banks to be responsible for the decline in inflation? Central banks at the moment are cream of the crop. They believe, I think, to for a large part, and investors are certainly believe uh, okay to believe that they control inflation almost perfectly over the medium term and over the longer term. But things are changing. If you're going to see an increase in debt, does the central bank have the willingness? It has the ability. Does it have the willingness to attack growth in order to bring inflation down so aggressively that we get question marks asked about debt sustainability? And if those question marks are asked and the financial stability and the mandate gets attacked, how does the central bank balance the two? At least going ahead, we should be open to the possibility that central banks don't have as much control on medium-term inflation as long as debt-to-GDP is not convincingly sustainable. There is a trade-off that's very different from the past, where they had no inflation to deal with, debt was very easily financed with low interest rates, and that was a very easy kind of phase of economic development. And finally, what do governments do? So in the past, what we've seen is you've had spikes in debt to GDP in World War I, World War II in, in difficult events where the government has had to step in. And once that event has passed, debt to GDP has gone down. And some of the commentary that we see in the newspapers almost treats pandemic-related debt as the same thing. And in a gross sense, it is. Once the pandemic is gone, there is no need for 10% fiscal deficits anymore. And the funding related to the pandemic should come down. But if you look at any debt projection before the after the pandemic, it shows you that the path of debt to GDP in the advanced economies is only going one way, and that's significantly higher. Under those circumstances, how do we prevent interest rates from rising if it's not through some kind of central bank intervention? And if central banks intervene to fight inflation that comes from higher debt, which would make it sustainable, do we then get a higher volatility regime? Or do central banks allow a little bit of inflation? And if that happens, how can we then stop interest rates from rising? So our basic contention is not only that we will see higher inflation, we're not talking about a return to the 70s, but we will see higher inflation on average and certainly higher inflation towards the end of a cycle, which we're not used to seeing, increasing volatility. Let me play back what I heard. So we've left a multi-decade regime of China joining the global workforce and technology has enabled women to join the workforce over the last several decades as well. And many of these trends are changing now. China's demographics are in decline. Women already are in the workforce. So the marginal bump from that is behind us. And these are structural changes. And in addition to that, you have these reshoring, nearshoring trends. And now this creates an issue for inflation and interest rates. And there's a trade-off between those two. So if you're a central bank, and you're going to be facing, in the medium term, more pressure on inflation, what do you do? You can be more aggressive on interest rates, and that would create more volatility or a higher cost of capital on the economy. That's one approach. 
The other approach is to tolerate a higher level of inflation, although we were experiencing a higher level of inflation the last few years. So is that a fair summary and a description of the, the trade-off that policymakers have in front of them? Yes, but in a sense, the, the situation is even worse because the, the debt problem is so high. The difficulty that we have in all our countries is that the on present projections, the expenditure for looking after the old, pensions, Medicare, and so on, mean that the deficit is going to go on rising. And with a reduced workforce, the rate of overall growth is going to go down and the tax take is going to remain fairly stagnant. Now, the difficulty is that you can deal with this either by cutting public sector expenditures. Now, what are you going to cut? We've got climate change coming up. We've got defense problems with Ukraine and Russia and China and Taiwan. We've got more and more old, like me, who need more and more medicines, and many of us are incapacitated. So we need very expensive care. Now, you put that together, and the actual long-term outlook, if you look at the Congressional Budget Office projections for debt and deficit, it's just going exponentially upwards. Effectively, it's unsustainable. Now, you can deal with this either by cutting public expenditures really quite sharply, and I think Trump might go in that direction, uh, or you can raise taxation. But neither of these are politically popular. And so the general way that all our politicians are working, and it's almost irrespective of party, irrespective yeah. of country, is that what you do is you hope for a growth miracle and leave it for the next elected party government to try and deal with the situation, which means it just doesn't get dealt with and it just goes on and it festers. We'll come back to AI and maybe that's a, a growth miracle in a moment, but what you're saying is like demographics are driving inflation higher, likely to pressure interest rates higher and driving public expenditures higher. In the United States, the primary driver of the increased burden is entitlements, which are used to fund retirees, which are lower with a lower worker to retiree ratio. So demographics are driving the most critical variables from fiscal policy to rates and inflation. And policymakers are in a bind and they are kicking the can because it's politically better to ignore the problem. I think that's what they're doing. I don't know that they're betting on a growth miracle. That's the charitable interpretation of that. I think people like myself and others are hoping for a growth miracle. Is there a path though with AI to and robotics and like we're still early days, right? I don't see I don't see mass transformation of sectors other than certain niche areas like creating memes. Uh, but is there do you see a viable path around AI and robotics to help the situation? It's very difficult to tell what AI will do. And one of the problems <clears throat> of robotics and AI is the what old people really want is human kindness and empathy. And it's very difficult to see how something like AI, which is very good on intelligence, but where will the empathy come from? I, it, it, I'm not ruling it out because you can imagine AI being organized to say lots of nice things to people 
but I, it's intelligence is different from empathy and human kindness. And you know, whether a machine can take over from a person in looking after old people in a care home, I think is dubious. At the very least, it's many years away, right? We have AI software like Replica and Character.ai, which test on higher scores for bedside manners than doctors do and physicians do. So there's potential, but we're a long way to go. We don't have driverless cars yet. And that idea is starting to come under pressure with some of the experiments in SF where emergency responders are getting hit and pedestrians are getting hit. So I'm sure we'll get there, but it's not a straight line. Uh, one of the one of the issues is a sort of legal issue, which was also one of the key issues on driverless cars. I knew who's responsible. And again, if something goes wrong, who takes the responsibility? And ultimately, and you've got to have a human take the responsibility for things going wrong. And we have at the moment in the UK, as you probably heard, this rather unhappy case where a computer program was supposed to deal with with the finances of postmasters and for a variety of reasons it went wrong the postmasters got accused of stealing the money and of course they they hadn't but the question then with any form of a computer assisted artificial intelligence if things go wrong who takes account Right, the legal frameworks need to catch up. We need a Manhattan project around AI productivity growth to get out of this conundrum is what it looks like. I'll, I'll add a couple of more things, uh, Ram. I think uh, the two things that remain out of the public discussion of number one, what the challenge really is in terms of demography, and number two, what the dynamic evolution of an introduction of AI is, right? First, let's talk about what the challenge is. The challenge isn't that there is a threat to the working age population. There is a threat to sectors in which some part of the workforce is likely to be threatened in the immediate near term of the introduction of AI. However, if you look at the breakup of the population, the fastest growing segment in our populations is what we would call the oldest old. One of the things that we are focused on in our book, there's a chapter that both Charles and I are very happy about on the mix of medical evolution and economics. And what it suggests is that the rate of incidence of dementia and neurodegenerative diseases is exponential along with age. Now, as those diseases develop, the ability of people afflicted with those illnesses to take care of themselves diminishes quite rapidly and again, exponentially. And that means out of a shrinking workforce, a larger and larger segment of people will be required to look after the elderly not directly, I don't mean physically, but to take care of that entire growing segment of the population, like you said, maybe one of the things is nursing homes, as you had mentioned in earlier conversations, that's where some of the increases in employment are almost guaranteed to happen, which means what's left of the workforce is actually a much smaller and a decreasing number of a shrinking number that we see in the projections that the UN population statistics give us. So what we need is actually software or technology or AI that will release people at an increasing rate because out of a shrinking workforce, we're already moving people out to what we would call socially productive but not economically productive activities. The people who are consuming these services are not going to go back into the workforce and pay for those services again, which means if they haven't saved in the past, the government's going to have to take care of some of that, number one. 
Number two, let's say the four of us are involved in an organization which now takes on a brand new AI uh, program. And let's say half of us uh, are released by that. Charles and I are very happy to go and have lunches somewhere uh, for the near term. So the two of you are left. One of you will be chosen to be someone who takes ultimate responsibility exactly like Charles said. So there'll be one person whose productivity is positively affected by AI. There'll be someone else who works as an oversight worker. The two of us, while we've been made redundant now by AI, which is what everyone will focus on in the near term, are not historically in a position where we'll never have another job. We've had industrial revolutions in the past. When mechanization came about, they'd said you'd never need another worker in a factory again. That clearly hasn't been true. And that is particularly not due with the shrinking workforce. Chances are that we will find a job in the future. So a, a report by uh, Otto, who's uh, a researcher that both Charles and I like, suggests that since 1940, 60 to 65% of jobs in existence today didn't exist back then. Which means over a period of time, right. you'll see us being absorbed into new categories. So maybe my income remains the same. Your incomes go up because you have enhanced productivity along with AI. The aggregate income is higher. So I don't know why we ignore the fact that we can let off a new credit cycle or a new earning cycle or a new income cycle out of this. Those projections, I think, need to be taken into account. Labor market's clear, right? At the beginning of the 20th century, one in two Americans was a farmer. Now it's one to 2% of Americans are farmers. So I'm not worried about that part i i agree justin yeah so there's a lot of different threads that i want to pull on i want to start back where we talked about the growth of china from like 1990 to 2020 and first understand are there other economies in the world that are growing and will replace the loss that the global economy will feel with the reduction in china's workforce particularly when you couple that with what occurred during the pandemic in terms of moving and changing supply chains, does that extend the runway and give us more time to wait for this AI potential boon? And then third part of my question will relate to the demographics that we can maybe influence in 20 years, because that takes a long time to have a replacement rate change. But let's start there. Is there any other countries that are going to replace China? Let, let me take a crack at that uh, first. First, I do want to go back a little bit on the China question on what the model of growth was, right? The model of growth, I think, that they had in place was rather unique. And it was unique in the following way. That there is a thing called the impossible trinity in economics that you can't control your monetary policy regime your exchange rate and capital flows at the same time. You have to kill one of them to have control over the other two. Now, China's unique model was based on two things. Number one, they killed capital flows. Capital flows could not freely enter the country, which gave them the ability to control the exchange rate and domestic monetary policy. The effect of controlling capital flows was to say, you can invest in a limited way in China but the opportunity is so great that if you really want to reap the benefits of China, which is low wages, fertile land, and a lot of access to uh, any kind of global stage that you want, come and invest physically over here. So the Pearl River Delta, which in 1979 was a swamp land, has biggest, has a uh, 10th biggest GDP in the world now because that physical investment could be made on board. At the same time, when you had monetary independence, what you could do is run financial repression in a sense not in a negative sense, but in a way to finance your companies internally. So the rate of return on offer that was available for households 
was then translated into banking revenues that could then be passed on to state-owned enterprises, which could then use them very effectively because the capital stock of the country was very low. Now, the obvious candidate to replace China would be a mix of India and Africa. Both those populations are very young. Uh, there's a long way to go before the dependency ratios turn down. And we think that they will actually have a fantastic future if they get some basic things right. So about a third of the African uh, nations uh, in that entire continent have an ease of doing business that's actually better than China's. About a third of them have an ease of doing business that's worse than India's. And so we, we've got that juxtaposition. But we've got a situation in which the ability of India to coordinate its economic strategy between the center and states is better than that of Africa's. And Africa's a continent with the same size of the population as India with 50 nations. Thinking of them having a coordinated strategy that maximizes capital flows, turns them into output and returns them to the rest of the world, we think is very difficult. It's the administrative efficiency we worry about. And finally, a simple answer to that question is the state of the world now, which needs an offset to do what China did, is so different that we would probably need three Chinas. There are countries that can really have fantastic growth over that period of time and investors can turn to India, probably Indonesia, parts of Africa to get rate of returns. But are they productive enough to offset the demographic headwinds, particularly when China joins that cohort? We think it's very difficult. When you say we would need three Chinas, do you mean you would need three Chinas like circa 1985 during that growth trajectory? Or what do you mean by the statement we need three Chinas? We would need three countries the size of China and in the probably the 2000s, the way they were operating with the level of efficiency, with the capital stock, with access to markets um, to offset the lack of globalization, which itself is a function of the fact that globalizations had an adverse effect in societies in perception right. more than in, in reality. And just the fact that the demography that we face now has the ability to reduce growth and raise debt, thus creating a wedge in the debt to GDP ratio so much that the amount of disinflation that you'd have to create in some other country, I don't think one China itself would be enough to do it. You'd need three operating at the very highest level to really get rid of all the problems in the world. That's obviously not feasible. That's not within the solution set that we look around the world. We can't see that. Justin? You, you'd say AI has a better shot at it, but uh, that's because we don't know enough. Yeah. So I want to go back on the question of what can take over. It was not just the number of people in China. It was the fact that it was a stable, reasonably well-administered country, unified with a single strategy, fairly limited number of, of languages. They could mostly all read Mandarin. Africa is divided into very many countries with different languages. And stability is not something that you necessarily connect with the African continent, uh, certainly not political stability. And also the, the basic quality, China was the leading country in the world for millennia. And so the, if you like, the educational quality of the Chinese I was very high. And the Chinese, as many of you will know, tend to come top of the exams, more or less whichever country they happen to be in. I think both the, the government administrative stability in Africa and the comparative 
if you like, educational quality in Africa means that whereas I think that there is a potentiality for a great future in India, I have yet to see it necessarily occurring within Africa. And if you think instead of the possibility of a migration of very large numbers of, of people now living in Africa into the other areas of the world, that also has very clear political problems connected to it. Another question I wanted to bring up, you talked a little bit earlier, or there was a reference to central bank mandates. And I think there's a couple of things that I find interesting. One is just if in the United States, the mandate is to maximize employment and to chase a 2% inflation rate, should that number change? And then the second, a bit more provocative would be, should the central bank have some authority to try to get to a 2% replacement rate for, in some ways, incentivizing birth? Probably not the right. That's what happens in Australia, right? You get, you get tax, you get cash if you have kids in certain countries. I know in Australia, I think 10 years ago, it was like $5,000 cash. In the United States, you have tax credits based on the number of dependents you have in your household. So it's a question for fiscal policy, right? But it's, a, it's an interesting question. But you, to your point, Justin, demographics, if they're influencing inflation and interest rates, and that is the mandate of the central bank, and here you have a lever called demographics, and it's outside the scope of the central bank, and it should be for the same reason that central planning and the one-child policy failed miserably in China. It, it, it does create a really challenging problem. What does the central bank do if we're not having enough kids? Well, are they supposed to go in a certain direction? What does that mean? The central bank is going to be faced with a, a, a lot of very different problems. And the problems are going to be if the kind of inflationary problems because of a shortage of workers worldwide, apart from Africa, uh, does appear, then they can their target only effectively by raising interest rates relative to the sluggish growth to a level which actually makes the debt situation even worse. And the debt situation and the deficits have already increased to a level in which it is clear that under present policies, this whole situation is in the medium to longer term unsustainable. If it's not if it's patently unsustainable, at some stage it will break. And one of the things is that although in the short run, with the expectation of official interest rates going down over the next six to nine months, everything looks fine, at some stage there's going to be a major crisis in bond markets of the kind that the crisis in the UK gilt market with Liz Truss and quasi Quarteng uh, was simply a forerunner. This is called canary in the coal mine. So they're damned if they do and damned if they don't, because they're damned if they, they allow inflation to go up, and they're damned if they hold inflation down and the bond market crisis, because then they have to enter the bond market and reverse tracks and introduce some form again of support via quantitative easing which would allow inflation to come back again. So it's the, the, the last 30 years were, and I think led people to believe in a continuing relatively rosy future 
that is not there. We have the twin risks of inflation or interest rates going higher. Pick your poison. Can have both. And at the very least, volatility ahead. Because this is new uncharted territory and it's a regime shift that markets and policymakers have not trained on, lived through, or have frameworks to, to navigate. That's right. And if you've had 30 years of disinflation, uh, of struggling to bring inflation back to into target and find it difficult in some ways, it's very hard to appreciate that your world may be changing out from under you. Let me challenge you on one point here. So you're saying, look, if they raise interest rates and the debt burden increases, so damned if you do, damned if you don't, because you have this three points on a triangle and you're trying to solve for all of them, but they trade off. But if they raise short-term rates, that would lower economic growth, cause an inverted yield curve, and longer-term rates should decline, and then governments can term out their debt. Doesn't that at least solve the debt financing part of the problem, the public debt financing problem? It does um, stop issuing more. But if your if your debt burden if you look at the CBO's projections, for example, and most others are the same, their debt projections come from two or three things. Number one, they run a permanent primary deficit, which are entitlements for the elderly, along with other programs. And those are only going to get added to, like Charles said, you can't remove those. They have a constant interest rate. But because the debt rises because of a sustained primary deficit, you do not get uh, a decline in the role of interest rates or even a flat level. So you might think in a vague sense that a constant interest rate means the interest burden is steady, but it's not. Because the primary deficit is present in every period, the debt that needs to be refinanced next period is bigger. And therefore, the interest expense that you pay on that is significantly higher. So if you want to keep debt sustainable, you actually need lower interest rates to be around for a considerable period of time. If you attack growth and invert the yield curve, which usually happens for about one one fifth of a cycle, let's say, and the treasury market jumps in the first time and terms out his entire stock of debt. The right. next time it tries to do that, every investor in this room is going to know exactly what the strategy is and then bid interest rates up higher. You lose that element of surprise or relocating your debt very quickly. It can happen if debt to GDP stops rising, issuance stops rising, but not if it keeps rising. Fascinating. So there's a one-off tactic that Treasury can do if they have very skillful traders, which they do not, and they'll get it wrong, and markets will respond. So even that door does not remain a viable option. Certainly, if they raise short-term rates, economic growth would slow down, so interest rates would come down. But now... But tax, remember, tax takes would come down too. So the deficit would get even worse. Right. It's a consistent strategy, I think. And basically what we're saying is that we've got, and as I, actually the CBO in projection said, we've got an unsustainable projection of debt and deficits. And we've got at the moment no idea at all how we're going to handle that in terms of policy. Is there a scenario there where Gen X works higher for longer and more productive retired at a lower rate, and also takes it on the chin as it relates to entitlements, right? We're going to have means testing, and those are mechanisms, both... That's politically terribly unpopular, too. And Macron tried it, and the French ages were far too low. They were ridiculously low. And when he tried to raise the retirement age, and he ran into 
a political storm. I mean, the, nobody likes their retirement age being raised. The only way to do it is to make the increase in the retirement age sufficiently far ahead that it doesn't take effect for a long time. Right. And again, it comes down to the fact that there are plenty of ways to deal with this, but they're all politically horribly unattractive. So how are you going to get them done? The population that isn't sensitive to retirement at this point in time, because they're still betting on themselves, they're in their prime. Like Justin and I are in our young 40s. I'm not really betting on Social Security for my retirement. I've discounted that heavily, if not to zero. And I... I'm hearing what you're saying. I don't. I know that we're not the bulk of the voting distribution either. I expect that my benefits will be cut. It's inevitable. So there's going to be some population that bears the burden. My guess is it's a. It's my generation, our Gen X. Given the inaction of at least the United States Congress to do anything, really, maybe it doesn't matter that all of these solutions are politically. Uh, difficult to implement or pass or have somebody elected who proposes it because nothing's going to get done anyway. So in the event nothing happens at a political level, what does, what's the fallout? You talked a little bit about the bond markets and a crash, but what happens in a more macro? The markets enforce the change. It's very difficult to think that the underlying economics continue to evolve as they will, the underlying medical conditions continue to evolve as they will, and without any policy change, we can reach a stable equilibrium. There has to be some response. If it's not brought upon by policymakers, then the markets will deliver it. And one of the things that we have to think about is the path of emerging markets when they showed a lack of response or ill discipline or a combination of the two. If you look at Latin America today, almost every economy in there either has low debt to GDP or has a fiscal responsibility law. And none of the advanced economies do. One of the things that is going to happen over a period of time through buffeting or through volatility or through a difficulty in keeping inflation down to target is that the spreads in interest rate markets are going to change adversely. That may not affect emerging markets because their spreads may come down a little bit more. But interest rate levels in the economy are going to be higher. One thing I would say is an indicator of that is if we get inflation in the next cycle and that's still an unknown yet about how when to what level the behavior of break-even inflation that we've seen in the last six months will not be repeated in the last six to eight months 10-year break-even inflation has been super glued at 2.3 percent and that's telling you that the federal reserve has reached a level of monetary tightness that markets believe is enough to control inflation and they don't think this is a change in the inflation regime if inflation shows up again the next time, it's highly unlikely that financial institutions will look at that as a one-off again. It will look more like a regime change. You'll have to have greater compensation coming at you from break-evens, which means either you get real yields substantially lower to keep nominal bond yields high, or more likely it will percolate into credit spreads, it will percolate into returns that equity markets deliver, and therefore into the cost of borrowing. So this right now, I think doesn't give us really a sense of what could happen in an inflationary regime. We saw it for a period where the path of inflation was volatile, because right now it's still an open question about whether it was all transitory or whether Charles and I are right. But if it starts inching towards a regime which looks a little bit more volatile, 
the warning signals for anyone raising debt or having primary deficits and issuance on an uptrend will be tested quite severely. Policy will have to respond eventually. We don't know when that is, but they will have to. Does that revive the trillion dollar coin argument? It revives quantitative easing, seems like the very least, when you, you have the warning signs and the tremors in the UK. That's a form of quantitative easing, though, isn't it? The, it, it, the it, only lasted, it only lasted a relatively short time. But that was then because we got a change in, in, in politics. And the, the attempt, and again, the Liz Trust argument was that if you have a, a miracle of growth, you can handle all of this. And the assumption was that if you cut taxes, you will get growth sufficiently fast that everything will be fine, which was just enormously wishful thinking. And of course, it didn't work. So I'm, it's going to be, I think that the, there is a sort of just a hope and a belief that even though the working population is going to go down and the elderly, particularly the incapacitated elderly, are going to be increasing in number, and the, the, if you try and ex extrapolate uh, on present policies what's going to happen, debt and deficits are going to go up, as we've said, exponentially. At some stage, it will just it just won't work. There, at some point, there will be a tipping point in a, and probably a, a sort of major crisis in bond markets. At some point, not in the near future. And in the near future, the inflation seems to be being brought increasingly back down to target, largely through a reversal of the increases in energy costs that we had earlier. And that's going to make everyone happy and piling into the bond markets because they think there's a short-term speculative gain to be made. Uh, but it, when that passes through and the underlying pressures of demography and maybe the attempts to reduce large-scale immigration, which is keeping the working population from declining as rapidly as perhaps might have otherwise have occurred. And under those circumstances, the situation is going to look very different. Well, look at it this way very quickly. Is, is It's very difficult to imagine that the largest issuer of debt in the world is going to increase its issuance on a underlying exponential increase in debt. And the largest buyer of the world can sit back on the sidelines and tell private investors, buy this debt at the same interest rate that you have in front of you right now. Something's got to give in that equation. And our bet is it's going to be the central bank. Is there a catalyst that would cause market to price in this non-consensus view? I agree the 10-year break-even inflation rates aren't expecting this today and, and markets uh, just aren't looking far enough ahead. But are there a few events that you're looking out into the horizon that might be a wake-up call for markets? Go ahead, Charles. I'll go up to you. A lot of it depends on relatively short-term political developments. I don't know what happens in the elections in so many countries towards the end of this year and what happens to policy after that. Timing is very much influenced by unforeseeable political developments. Whether the, the hostilities in the Middle East get worse what's going to happen to energy prices, a whole series of things like that. But and the point that we're making is that irrespective of the short-term geopolitical developments, which certainly I can't foresee what's going to happen, 
on independent, entirely independent of these, at some stage, demography is going to force uh, effectively upwards pressure on unit labor costs. And that is going to make the world change in a way that is going to be in future very different from the past. And since so much of what has happened in markets is dependent on the belief that we can easily gain uh, the inflation target at 2%, at some stage is going to be a blow-up. Sorry, I'd add a simple sequence of events and cycles to add to what Charles has done. I think that background is almost impossible for anyone to predict in the near term, but the structural underlying elements are there. But just think of a sequence of cycles in which the labor market gets tighter and tighter with much greater ease. What we're seeing in the current cycle is actually a really good example. One of the things that has happened is we've all come to think of the elasticity of services inflation with respect to labor market tightness. If wage growth is strong, we all know by now, and we've been told this by central banks on many occasions, that the pass-through of wages into services inflation is pretty significant and it needs to be incorporated in explicitly. So unless you see wage levels coming down sharply, it's very difficult to think that services inflation will come down sharply and stay there. Now, in future cycles, as demography evolves and the shortage of workers becomes apparent, to create a certain amount of slack in the labor market is going to require an increasingly greater amount of decline of economic activity. And are you willing to make that sacrifice will become a bigger question every time we go along. At some point, either the central bank will say, yes, it's necessary to push activity down enough in order to get inflation under control, or they're going to say, actually, I don't want to put activity down anymore. And then that labor market tightness simply does not allow inflation to go up. So either through yields, again, the same conundrum that we have, either through yields increasing because tight labor markets lead to services inflation, or through sustainability, sustainability questions because you drive GDP down quite sharply in order to control inflation, you can't reach a trigger point. Neither Charles and I have the foresight to say exactly when it will happen, but the trajectory remains pretty clear in our minds. Let's translate this now to investment themes. So one is you're going to see higher wages, and this is part of the bright side of your thesis, which is declining inequality, which is definitely a non-consensus view. When I look around the world, I see greater inequality for all sorts of reasons that I don't think will reverse. But your point around higher wages is one of your conclusions, uh, which is a which is a great part of the story. I'd love for you to double click on that part, and then we'll talk about some of the investment themes that one might be able to orient around. Let me just say one thing: one's always got to distinguish between world inequality and within country inequality. Right. If you look at world inequality. Over the last 25 years, it has gone down a lot because the poorer areas of very populous Asia, uh, China, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, increasingly now India, have now been growing pretty fast over the last 30 years on a per capita basis, while growth has tended to slow in the advanced economies of the West. So world inequality has gone down whereas within country inequality has gone up because wages have been held down in the advanced countries. And in order to offset that, the central banks have presided over a period of very low interest rates and very high uh, capital prices and housing prices. Now it's likely to reverse. So that what we're going to get is 
less inequality within countries like the UK and the US, partly because higher interest rates will mean that capital values will be less and wages will be greater. But the reduction of within-world inequality that we saw over the last 30 years may now stall. Because, for example, if you took the sort of rates of growth, say, even four or five years ago, it looked as if China was going to get very close to the US in terms of living standards pretty soon. But as the demographic factors have now started to hit China badly, it now looks as if it will take a very long time, indeed possibly never, for China to catch up with the US. So one's got to distinguish very sharply between within-country and world inequality programs. But we stand by the view that within-country inequality is likely to decline. Charles, go ahead. The last 30 years have been a wonderful time to be a capitalist. Really wonderful time. And it's going to be much more difficult. Right. What you're saying is, hey, interest rates are going to go up, so the discount rate on equities increases. Credit spreads are going to widen. Yeah. That also hurts risk assets. Yeah. Growth will be more scarce. Yes. So you need to be more precise around your exposures and active management. Passive investing, I would say, is going to be under a lot more pressure because passive investing is exposed to all of those risk factors. Passive investing benefited from the tightening of credit spreads and the lowering of... Yeah, it's a there's a transfer also from the returns to capital to the returns to labor. And obviously, capitalists capture something like, what, two-thirds of the gains, depending on how you measure that, over the last few decades, and the returns to labor, labor have not. And that is going to start shifting in the other direction, which is a great story for a household. It's a great story for workers in that sense, but not necessarily a great story for equity investors. I think on the equity investor side, that if you're focused on living longer, longevity themes, biotech, pharmaceuticals, nursing homes, leisure travel for retirees, what else? I think those seem to be themes that could do well with this backdrop. Wheelchairs, what are those things that you- Wheelchairs? Push ahead of you. Walkers. Yeah, yeah, old age walkers. I, I'd only add one thing. If if you have interest in the topic of inequality, there's a great starting point at Jackson Hole about a year and a half ago, where there was an excellent paper that was presented by Mian Straub and Sufi, who argued that inequality would keep uh, bond yields down for a much longer period of time. And the argument was was important for two reasons. Number one, uh, it, it's it's really nice to see something that seems like an amorphous concept to us inequality, rising injustice, these kind of things uh, are very difficult to quantify. So one of the great things that they did was they quantified that and tried to look at the relationship between inequality and who's investing in the bond markets. And the second thing was the direction that they gave, which I disagreed with. So in a discussion of that paper, it was very clearly pointed out that the increase in inequality in the United States had not come because the top 10% were earning so much more, but because the lower 50% of the population had earned so much less in real terms. And that's exactly where the rise of China would have challenged jobs, which were at the lower end of the value-added chain where the manufacturing sector would have hurt. There's enough evidence to suggest that is exactly what happened. And the argument that we are making over here is that the younger part of the population, which will be subject to taxes, 
but have significantly higher bargaining power will be able to enjoy real incomes and a standard of living that they simply did not have the bargaining power for over the last 30 years. Because if you argue for a higher job in an activity that could be replicated by China, you are likely to lose your job and your incomes. That probably is no longer the case. So the distribution of incomes because of deglobalization and because of demography is likely to change very differently within an economy. It's possibly a, a trend that is really worth following over a period right. of time. Right. Blue collar jobs should do real well, for instance. How are you positioning your portfolios? And given everything you've shared at a, at a high level, bonds aren't great. Talk about equity risk premia increasing. You can focus on countries with relatively better demographic stories. There's a country allocation. That would be the United States, Latin America, India, and Mexico. By the way, India is one of the best performing markets globally, as well as Mexico and the United States. Brazil's doing doing all right too. So the demographic story is playing out at that country allocation broadly. How, how would you position yourself for the 10 years ahead? I'll take a first crack at it. Charles, do you want to go ahead? I'm not, at my age, I'm positioning myself to die within the next few years. Charles, so. Charles I, I, I often tell Charles he's exactly the wrong person to write this book because he's been telling me for the last 10 years that his memory is failing. He can no longer do the things that he used to do. And every day that I wake up, there's an increasing stockpile of work that I'm falling behind on. His productivity is ridiculous. So I would discount what Charles says with, with a very heavy discount rate. Longevity is a trend. Longevity is a real trend. People living longer than they expected. Not well, there we, there we be careful. The longevity in the United States has actually gone down. The Economist article we all saw a few months ago and there's a COVID spike and some morbidities through... And the, the, the other problem is that although longevity has tended to trend upwards, healthy life, healthy longevity, and that goes back to the other feature, which is so important on this, yeah. uh, which is that we haven't conquered, we haven't really made much inroad yet on the long-term diseases of the old. And these diseases don't kill you quickly. And that means that they incapacitate you rather than kill you. And that is what is so very costly uh, for society as a whole. And if I was to say that the one change that I would really most like to see and would change my view of the future would be an, an increasing ability of medical science to deal with Parkinson's, dementia, and so on. One of the things that must yeah. change is that there is a huge disparity of medical funding. It needs to shift from cardiovascular and cancer into the neurological diseases hmm. of the old. There's far too little funding of the neurological diseases, partly because all the scientific, it's been very hard to get much improvement right. in that field. More and more scientific research in these areas suggests though that many of those issues of Parkinson's and dementia are related in some ways to metabolic disease and metabolic function, including things that we need to be more proactive about, whether that's sleep, exercise, diet, and community. So a lot of the things that are actually within our control can improve those. Now that's a 
totally different story than just the actual medical intervention when the disease has taken hold in an individual. They're challenging to get people to change behaviors, just like it's challenging to get politicians to look and forecast into the future and make difficult decisions. That's absolutely true. And the, as a result of improvements, primarily the reduction of smoking, the actual incidence of these diseases in each cohort has been going down. The problem is that the increase in the numbers of the cohort, particularly of the oldest, is so large that it's far more than offsetting the fact that the incidence of such diseases within the cohorts has been declining. That's right. I was actually going to ask that, uh, not related to health, but related to the demographic trends generally a little bit later. I'm going to jump in. We've talked a little bit about the next decade and saying it's hard to look at the next quarter or the next year. But what if we expanded the timeline even further? When does this demographic trend, maybe that's primarily a result of baby boomer generation and the high birth rate, pass through the system? I'm saying it in a nice way, but when does that oldest old generation kind of pass on? And yes, there's still we're still below replacement rates. So there's fewer workers for people being uh, at retirement age, but maybe the Delta is not so great. So it's a little bit easier to withstand. Is that 20 years away, 30 years away? Is that ever going to happen at a meaningful rate? I think that the pop overall population is likely to stabilize around about for the US, around about the turn of the century. In other words, around 2050. So the population will then start declining overall, as it is already in China and much of Asia. But again, a lot of that depends on what happens on migration, and which we don't know, and whether the, the birth rate stabilizes or in fact actually increases. I know it is. But the... The attempts to, if you like, to give a favorable tax treatment to people with children has not had much in the way of significant effect on the trends in the birth rate. I would add that one of the things we do need to think through is, mathematically speaking, there is enough balance between economies that are seeing significant population slowdowns and significant increases in population still in different parts of the world, that if you mathematically wanted to allow an equalization or stabilization in growth rates, that could happen. But the impediments to immigration, politically speaking, are incredible. If you look at the advanced economies in the last three years, almost all of them, major markets for investment, have seen an increase in immigration. United States, Canada, Sweden, Australia, New Zealand, you talk about it, then they've seen it. But in many of them, a political backlash to that kind of dynamic has also been seen. So it's not that we have to think of each country as a individual bereft of any hope of trading human numbers across the world, but something has to happen in the near term that allows these immigration routes to happen to, to be more accessible. And typically it takes the form of a mini crisis or an outright crisis in the UK, for example, you had to have a major shortage of qualified truck drivers that then opened a visa system that would try and fast track these kind of qualified people over to our shores. But short of that happening, if you start thinking about individual countries, I think you're setting the stage for a very difficult economic backdrop, which means you're saying 
only when we get to a place where we've stabilized our populations can we think of a calm economic situation. We'll never get to that. I think we'll have a crisis, a major one, well before that. So it makes sense. And trade can't solve the problem because the need is for greater services. You need people to service the elderly and young kids and perform certain functions, especially as we can transition to our services-oriented economy around the world. So just doubling back there, Manoj, what's your take then? How do you position yourself? You're investing for the next 10 years. What's your asset allocation look like? In, in, in some senses, I, I think what you have to look at is not only the clear beneficiaries of the demographic divergence. India is a very clear example, right? Where we mentioned some of maybe the countries in Africa, some sectors that will continue to grow from here. But I think you also need to pay increasing attention to the people who are reacting to that challenge positively. So one of the things that I've absolutely loved over this last year, and I've been very lucky on that story, is, is to think about Japan. Uh, and if you think about Japan, the question that we get asked the most is, why does any of your thesis hold any water if Japan's the fastest aging economy? It hasn't inflated. So we've got an entire chapter on the book that we actually did first to answer that question. But uh, the forward-looking idea of Japan is that they, they, they started investing in capital very heavily. A lot of that is cyclical because their profit uh, numbers are very high. Um, animal spirits are in, in, in pretty good shape. Fiscal policy is helping set that tone. Hopefully, monetary policy doesn't get in the way. But this is a classic answer. When you think about nursing homes and uh, looking after the elderly, I'm, I'm guessing you're thinking about a sector that is going to see the challenges, invest in capacity, invest in employment, have a very large segment of the population that it will need to cater to, and therefore have a consistent line of revenues. Japan's kind of trying to do the same. It understands that it's got a very old population. If you get out at Tokyo Station and try and get a taxi, the average age of the taxi driver is not young. And they are trying to replace a lot of the aging population with CapEx, something that they have not done for a very long period of time. So even where the solutions are being considered, I think you'd have to get proactively into those markets. My simple suggestion would be Inflation-linked bonds are the easiest way you can try and think about it, which is why I mentioned break-evens. The fact that break-evens are still at 2.3, which is very close to its pre-pandemic, pre-GFC peak, I think is a clear opportunity for those people who have structural concerns about inflation, though I doubt anyone will buy for the next 10 years right now. But if they do, that's one way to look at it. I think emerging market returns are excellent. I think places where either sectors or economies where capex is relatively skewed i think those are places that you can get in beyond that you just have to do your homework that makes sense and of course robots are a form of capex as well we should say right autonomous driving vehicles we just need to find robots that have kindness and empathy and a, a human touch so we, we got some ways to go perhaps investing in startups or the semiconductor theme that might benefit from those investments could be a way to hedge some of these risks out here. I think we covered a lot of ground here. This is really terrific and incredibly insightful. Thank you so much for your time. I don't know if you have any concluding remarks or any other key ideas you want to convey. I think that one of the issues that comes out of all this is that migration is an enormously important issue. And it has pros and it has cons. And I think one needs to think about it very carefully. And also not only just aggregate migration, but migration, again, divided by who are the migrants, what are their various skills, and so on. And again, the other thing that I would say is that Africa is going to be increasing its population really dramatically compared to the rest of the world. 
and we and policies related to Africa, both economic and political, I think are going to be much more important over coming decades than they have been in recent decades. Good. Yeah. I would only add that the policy angle here is going to be absolutely critical. I think it's if you want to keep a lookout for economies that are showing you the promise of better returns, the composition of fiscal policies, the composition of where capital is allocated, if those show cognizance of the challenges that lie ahead of them in a prescient manner, in a manner that is a little bit more humble and takes account for the fact that we may have significant structural change ahead of us, that's probably a way for people to think more optimistically and maybe think of their future portfolios in a more flexible way. I would really keep a very close look at that. Perfect. Thank you all so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Great book, The Great Demographic Reversal. It's loaded with charts, by the way, too, which I, I found very helpful and accessible. So thank you all for the time and perspective. Very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was really wonderful to have you on today. A pleasure. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening in on the episode. Remember, in the world of investing, the road less traveled often leads to the greatest rewards. I'm Ram Alawalia, your host and chief investment officer at Lumida Wealth, where we specialize in the craft of alternative investments. Invest wisely, stay ahead of the curve, and stay non-consensus.